Welcome to the Vancouver True Crime Podcast. This is part two. What happened to Tamara Nadine Thompson? Originally, I was going to do a series of all the missing women on Vancouver Island. And when, when I was researching all the different mysterious cases of women disappearing on Vancouver Island and all the unsolved murders and homicides. I was reaching out to people, talking to people, and a lady contacted me. She said her friend has been missing for some time. She tried to go to the police, but they wouldn't help her. And she asked me, could you do a podcast about my friend? who I haven't seen in such a long time. So on November 3rd, 2020, I did my very first post about Tamara Nadine Thompson. This was on my Instagram page on Vancouver True Crime. Tamara Nadine Thompson, was she murdered? Her married name was Penner, last seen alive approximately five years ago, Vancouver Island. The information regarding her disappearance is thin. Rumors that she might have been murdered for witnessing something she shouldn't have seen. This beautiful woman with such a bright smile has no family. Apparently her friends tried to file a missing persons report, but the police told them that only a family member can file one. What happens? when someone vanishes from the face of the earth and they don't have any family then to be continued. So I didn't really have much information. I didn't know her birthday and I didn't really know or could find anything about her only from her friend's testimony. I looked really hard for her Facebook page or any sign of her even on the internet or any social media and I couldn't find anything. So on November 21st, 2020, I did a second post. The mysterious disappearance of Tamara Nadine Thompson, last seen alive approximately five years ago. Police apparently won't launch a missing persons case according to friends that have tried. Even though there was events that make her disappearance very suspicious, it is worth noting that police are well aware of these events leading up to her vanishing off the face of the earth. Yesterday I had a phone conversation with Tamara's friend, who I'll call Miss M. She told me yesterday that she tried to report her missing to the city of Langford, West Shore RCMP. They told her in their words that they, the RCMP, are not mandated to search for random people of the general public. The call was very heartbreaking. Tamara was in her late 30s, but had the mental capacity of a young teenager. She's described as sweet, happy-go-lucky, very naive, and that could be very manipulated. Both her parents passed away and she has no family. Tamara was from Vernon and Cranbrook, BC. She was married, 
but they separated but remained friends. I don't understand why the ex-husband never filed a missing persons case. Tamara might have unintentionally have gotten involved with bad people and a situation that might be responsible for her disappearance. She was on disability. I was given the name of her social worker and apparently Tamara had a Facebook account that I'm trying to find. It may give some clues to the actual timeline of her life. So the reason why I read these two earlier reports or posts that I did, because I want you to notice the timeline. They both say five years. And it's worth noting that her friend who tried to report her missing has always stuck to the five-year timeline. It was me who said 10 years if people were following this case and stuff like that. And the only reason why I went with the 10 years rather than the five, because I scoured the internet in my best abilities. And the only clue or proof that I could find of Tamara being alive was a birthday party around the 2008 timeline. So that was a timeline that I was going on. Since then, people have provided evidence of her being alive since 2008. I've spoken to over 20 people who have known Tamara, including people that have known her, for her from her childhood in Cranbrook, who went to school with her, elementary school and summer camp and uh, those types of activity, like grew up with her. I've spoken to people that went to high school with her and graduated with, from high school with her. And I also spoken to people that knew her as an adult. So I've had people that have contacted me that have told me that they have seen her alive in 2012 and 2013 around that timeline in Tofino, BC on Vancouver Island. Also, I was sent of her attending Camolson College in Victoria, BC. And it shows that she graduated from a course round 2016. So that gives proof that she was alive approximately five years ago. Also, recently, from a lady that contacted me via my Instagram page who says, and I think it's a credible sighting, that she believes that the woman that I posted looks identical, taking consideration aging and longer hair, that she was seen in North Vancouver in 2020. How she describes, and I'm going to paraphrase, this encounter that this lady was out with a group of friends and Tamara approached them, if we are going to say hypothetically that this is the same woman, approached her and she was in severe emotional distress. She said to them that she got kicked out of a pub and she got into some kind of confrontation with a bartender and she was thrown out of the pub. She approached the women and she said that she was currently in an abusive situation and she had nowhere to go. Her behavior was described as erratic and unhinged and the ladies felt very bad for her and they tried their best to help her. They contacted 
a woman's shelter on the North Shore in North Vancouver and helped her, I guess, get access to that shelter. I don't know if they physically took her there or just called and gave a number, but that was the last that they of the encounter. I I do believe the 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 sighting could be uh, credible, but still, there has been no other confirmation. I contacted the pub. I haven't heard anything back. And also another woman who lives on the North Shore con actually spoke to someone that works at the pub and they did not recognize Tamara. So at the end of the day, we're back to what my original post going on to her friend's testimony. She was last seen alive that they can prove five years ago, which is the timestamp of her taking the Camusen college course. I contacted the school. They were quite rude and very unhelpful and got nowhere with them. So again, starting with very little information, the last podcast did extremely well and it got a lot of attention. And I and since then, I made a Facebook Vancouver True Crime page and I also made a dedicated one to what happened to Tamara as well. So I would say about over 20 people have reached out with me that I've had in-depth conversations with in boats. And I've spoken to over five people on the phone. The people range from people who went to elementary school with her, high school, and people who knew her as an adult. So again, uh, when I started, I didn't have a birthday for her. Her birthday that everyone has now as a consensus agreed she was born in 1968, December 27th, which would make her about 53 years old. Everyone describes her in almost the identical way. A beautiful, sparkling personality, loving, happy-go-lucky, sweet, fun to be around, and people truly love and care about her but also she was a person that suffered from mental health issues if she took her medication she was compliant with her medication and under a care of a doctor she did well and she had it when she had a good routine and you know she had she was she was a good you know a happy-go-lucky person she also from according to people who've spoken with me that she did have some trauma in her early childhood, which I'm not going to really go into because it's quite controversial. And, and, uh, but from the different people who approached me with it, you know, I do think it's credible. But that's all I'm going to touch on regarding that. She might have had thyroid cancer. Don't know. I can't prove that, but it was told to me. And she had scoliosis in high school and wore a back break. Brace. But other than that, 
Everyone described her as loving, beautiful, sparkling, happy-go-lucky, the life of the party, and a very sweet person. But also, what was described to me was her behavior that she can be quite erratic. Mood swings, deep depression, manic states where she'd be in really severe manic depression, either take off, don't tell people where she's going, or won't leave her bed for weeks at a time. And I think this had a heavy toll on her relationships. So then there was the Darcy situation. In my last podcast, I described in quite great detail what a monster Darcy is. But one thing I want to touch upon is where my thoughts are. And this is according again to conversation. So I I reached out to a person that knew Darcy and is, is in the process of getting me getting me in touch with one of his ex-girlfriends and according to them Darcy was known for being quite cruel and in their words enjoyed hurting women so if you listen to the last podcast about his monstrous crimes that he pled guilty to you won't find this surprising whatsoever So I was told that when Tamara met Darcy, their first date was him taking her out of town to Powell River, BC to this uh, hotel, motel, the Moonlight Hotel, which each room I believe has its own outdoor hot tub. On this little weekend getaway, he pressured her and basically forced her to smoke crack is something that she didn't do on her own and apparently had his way with her and she was quite physically ill and traumatized after this trip. So I was thinking about how she put a whole bunch of things like trucks and uh, other stuff in her name, insurance and stuff in her name. So she was probably honestly afraid of this monster rather than her just being naive as she was describing as doing it out of free will. So she probably did it out of fear. So it's also important for me to uh, talk about the amount of hostility that I have received covering the disappearance of Tamara. Now I've made no conclusions of what has happened to her so when i first you know looked into this and just going by all the missing people and the cases on vancouver island that are unsolved and each one uniquely disturbing in itself that i just put her in the category of all these other cases that i've been looking at where women go missing never seen again and they're assumed murdered and especially after her being involved with someone who committed three murders that we know about. And now that I have other testimony that he was a sadist and he also enjoyed hurting women. So it's not a a difficult conclusion to come to. Now I've been approached by people online, on telephone, 
and and through my different social medias telling me to back off because I'm putting her in danger. Well, no, it was be it would be probably Darcy and someone uh, of in that category that would have put her in danger. Like all missing people, I believe they deserve a voice and they deserve uh, justice and they deserve our society to at least try to find answers to for the people that care and love them that are concerned that these people are no longer around or have not been in contact with them whatsoever. Now, one call was specifically very, you know, irritating and disturbing. Foolishly, I gave a, some woman my phone number and uh, I was on the other line and someone kept calling and calling and calling. So I answered the other line and this woman proceeded to start screaming at me, telling me to back off because she's in witness protection and I'm endangering her. Well, if she's in witness protection, then she's safe. But the problem with this is, is that Tamara's friends also interviewed the police at the same time as her. Tamara didn't interview the police by herself. They went as a, as a group together about the murder that she witnessed. And the police told her that they didn't need Tamara's testimony. They didn't need Tamara's help. And they didn't need really anything from her because Darcy already pled guilty. So there was no trial. There was a sentencing. So as far as they're concerned, it was an open and shut case and Tamara had nothing to worry about whatsoever. Also, it's important to add as well that since she reported what she saw or witnessed to the police, She's been seen alive since that reporting. Like, for example, being enrolled in that college course in 2016, being seen in Tofino in 2012, 2013. Darcy was sentenced in 2012. So if she was in witness protection, she wouldn't be taking college courses in her name and wandering around on Tofino and having conversations with people. She's been missing since then. So there's no reason why, or I can conceive, that five years after they sentenced this Darcy and they didn't need her testimony, now they're gonna put her in witness protection? And also too, wouldn't it be cruel when people are reporting her missing and they know that they have her in special police custody and they're gonna keep it a state secret, I think they would at least inform like, hey, you guys have nothing to worry about. She's in, she's in our custody. I personally think that the witness protection is people's wishful thinking. And it's a nice way for them just to wrap things up in their mind that she's safe and in the arms of the RCMP when they can't prove it either way whatsoever. 
as much as I can't prove it. But just going through all the different facts, it just doesn't seem to be a logical conclusion. So I had another disturbing thing that happened actually yesterday on my Vancouver True Crime Facebook page. A person who says that they are family basically was quite hostile and accused me of spreading misinformation, saying that I'm spreading information about the mother dying of cancer. I didn't, I didn't know anything about the mother, never spoken about the mother, and keep saying, well, she did have family, she does have family. Well, according to the people that I talked to, the people that lived with her in Victoria, she, Tamara, had no family that she was in touch with or in her life on a regular basis. Of course, it is probable that she has blood relatives somewhere, but she had no family that were in her daily life that were part of her adult life. So, that's that. I understand that people get emotional and this is a very emotional case because it really shouldn't happen. Meaning that when someone disappears and you file a missing persons report, there should be at least a, you know, some kind of like help from the authorities just to look in the facts. Is she missing? Is it a welfare check? Is she in hiding? And of course, it's quite understandable why she might go into hiding. You know, but at the same time, from everyone I talk to, she has poor mental health. Like the lady that saw her on, in North Vancouver, I'm going to assume that it's a credible sighting, saying that she looked quite unhinged. She was doing some crazy children's clapping song. And the song even got a little inappropriate. And, you know, she, the woman according to her, found the encounter quite unnerving and unhinged. So I believe from everyone else that I've spoken to regarding her mental health that she doesn't have the capability to make sound choices for herself. Like she needs to be in the care of a doctor if she's alive. One thing I hope everyone can agree upon that she is a missing person. And what a missing person means is that individuals whose whereabouts are unknown despite reasonable efforts to locate that individual and a who has not been in contact with people or persons who would likely be in contact with that individual or whose safety and welfare are feared for the given. Everyone that I spoke to that known Tamara in her adult life says, yes, she was known for disappearing. She was known for switching her social media around and deleting it and opening new ones or using other people's. But they all agree on one thing. And these are people I've spoken to over 20 people and about 10 of them did know her in her adult life and all 10 of them 
unanimously said the same thing, but these people didn't know each other. So there's no way they can coordinate their same statement. All of them said, eventually, she always reached out and was in contact with people that she cared about and that were her friends eventually. And this is why people are concerned because it's been a long, long, long time since she's reached out. So one, she could be dead or she could be in such a bad mental health condition that she's deteriorated to the point where she can't even reach out to people. But my point is, is that she is missing because no one knows where she is that do care about her, including her so-called family members who take it upon themselves to harass me. They don't know where she is as much as I don't know where she is. So I've spoken with her friend again, whom I call Miss M, and I asked her again, how many times have you tried to report her missing? And she said she's tried to report her missing over five times. So I decided I would call. I called the Victoria City Police Department. I met with a woman that was quite rude, but she did kind of half listen to me. And then I got a call back from a Saanich Police Constable who wouldn't let me even get a word in, spoke over me, uh, finished my sentences for me, and made anything I said sound ridiculous and basically wouldn't even take my statement. So I was quite shocked and sickened by this because this is not supposed to happen because after the whole Willie Picton aftermath, new rules were supposed to be put in place to make it easy to report people missing. So I'm going to read, um, this is a report from Wally Opal, who, who was in charge of the missing woman's inquiry after the Willie Picton pig farm murders, where over 65 women's DNA were found in that disgusting, horrible farm. And it is assumed that all of them met with foul play so women were going missing on the downtown east side i'm just going to paraphrase really quickly here and people were reporting it to the police there was an active serial killer and they wouldn't listen and women kept going missing and going missing and going missing even though people were reporting it missing women missing the long-awaited missing woman's inquiry report make 65 recommendations to try to avoid another serial killer preying on vulnerable women. Chief among them was to create a regionalized policing in the Lower Mainland. The fractured and oft-criticized Missing Women's Commission of Inquiry was led by former BC Appeals Court Justice and BC Attorney General Wally Opal today releasing its 1,400-page report entitled Forsaken. I think there's enough commitment to bring about change, Wally said in an interview. While I have pointed out 
many critical mistakes that police have made. It's unfair and wrong to lay these mistakes solely at the feet of the police. Wally noted there's often there were other systemic issues that led to victims ending up on the street, including poverty, racism, drug addiction, and a lack of affordable housing. The inquiry was struck more than two years ago and heard from dozens of witnesses examined why it took so long for the Vancouver police and the RCMP to identify Willie Picton as a serial killer, despite warning he was preying on sex workers on the Vancouver downtown east side. Many of the recommendations have been previously voiced by advocates and family members of Picton's victims. However, in listening them in a hefty document, Wally hopes the policy makes will make will listen to the act. He makes 63 recommendations within the scopes of his inquiry, including regionalized police agency, creating a Aboriginal liaison position within the Vancouver police, the provincial, the province making a legislative change to protect women in the sex trade and step up to clean up the downtown east side to reduce the risk of another Picton using the neighborhood as a breeding ground. He made two additional recommendations, the need for a 24-hour drop-in center in the downtown east side, the need for a shuttle bus along the Highway 16 in northern BC where many vulnerable women have been disappearing while hitchhiking. He's talking about the Highway of Tears. Some type of regionalized policing across the lower mainland, which is policed by a patch quilt of multiple municipal agencies and RCMP detachments. It's necessary, the report argues, because communication in the missing woman's case was poor. Women disappeared from the Vancouver police jurisdiction while Picton lived in Port Coquitlam, which is policed by the RCMP. We are the only major city in Canada without a regionalized police force, Opal said in an interview. Opal report concluded that the Vancouver police showed a lack of urgency in responding to the mounting number of women going missing from the neighborhood in part because police failed to get to know the victims. This failure to get to know the victims group meant inaccurate information about the women in particularly the belief that the likelihood that they would just turn up infiltrated all aspects of the missing and murdered women's investigation the document said. Also that the police wasted time trying to confirm a woman was missing instead of following protocol and believing the family members was fundamentally wrong and had a perverse effect. Opal 
found that three overreaching faulty risk assessments by police were not correct over time despite more and more evidence to the contrary piling up that the woman had been murdered and that a serial killer was probably responsible and that the number of victims would continue to grow the three main flawed risk assessments were the epicenter of the police failure in these overlapping investigations he wrote police decision makers discounted the known risk to violence and murders this group of vulnerable women face and continued to mistakenly believe the women were transient despite the clear evidence to the contrary. Opal argued that the Vancouver police had an obligation to warn women in the downtown east side about the danger they're in but utterly failed to do so. Opal also found that the police failed to properly pursue this case including unreasonably restricting input from the family and the use of the media in their investigation. The police investigation were also wholly inadequate when following up tips and were plagued by unacceptable delays and failed to properly use other techniques such as surveillance, undercover operations, search warrants and forensic evidence, a report said. Since Clifford Olson's spree killing decades ago, there's also been recommendations after the recommendations to regionalize policing in the Lower Mainland so agencies would better communicate on major cases. Opal makes a suggestion in this report saying there was a general systemic failure on the part of the Vancouver Police and the RCMP to deal with cross-jurisdiction issues. Communication and coordinations were inconsistent and erratic. The irregular meetings were negligible benefit. In particularly there was a wholly unacceptable delay in forming a joint task force. The RCMP and the VPD did not officially launch this into May to mid, sorry, 2001. By then, there was an estimated of 60 women who've disappeared from the downtown east side over a span of 20 years. Fragmentation of policing in the Lower Mainland led to serious communication failures and failure to share key evidence between the VPD and the RCMP and the low prioritiz prioritization of missing women and the Picton investigation, Opal reports said. He concluded that the investigation was under-resourced not because there wasn't enough money to fund it, because it wasn't a given enough prioritization by government or police. Opal also criticized that this was a case that was void of any leadership by any police agency and ultimately led to Picton's crime spree going on for a long time. 
No senior management at the VPD, RCMP, E Division, Major Crime Section, Coquitlam, RCMP, or Provincial Unsolved Homicide Unit took on this leadership role and asserted ongoing responsibility for the case. The story of the missing women, he began. Story? What story? This is reality. A member, a family member yelled from the audience. He thanked the families for their support of the victims and for attending the, the press conference today and for their unwavering fight for justice in this case. While most listened quietly to his words, one woman yelled hogwash from the crowd. It's inadequacy, the poverty that breeds this type of violence that has been seen in this case, he said. Even though Picton is in jail, the violence against women in the downtown east side and other areas of the province continues. It's time to stop the violence. It is time to stop talking about it and do something about it, Opal said. Families in the audience broke out in applause and one woman yelled, Amen! Fifteen minutes into Opal's press conference, it was interrupted by an Aboriginal drum. All the victim's family, Aboriginal and white, stood in unison and sang a native song. Lorianne Ellis, sister-in-law of Kara Ellis, and Liliane Bergedon, sister of Diane Rock, raised their arm in support of the missing women. Family members hugged and wept. Opal stood respectively at the podium in silence. Sandra Ganon, sister of missing woman of Janet Henry, stood up in the front row in the family seat and she wanted to hear what Opal had to say and Opal continued his press conference. After reviewing the evidence of the investigation, I have come to the conclusion that this was a systemic bias by the police in the missing woman's investigation. He said, noting, the women were poor, addicted, marginalized. That elected an applause from the public gallery. They did not receive equal treatment from the police as a group. They were dismissed, Opal said. These women were vulnerable. They were treated as throwaways. The police thought that, well, if they disappeared in one week, they would be back. Wally Opal noted that a woman often result of their troubled background and had the misfortune of becoming drug addicted. Why would the reaction of the police and the public be any different these women came from the west side the answer is obvious said Opal said why haven't we done anything about the poverty because you're the government yelled someone in the crowd racism yelled another when Opal said to the families and the advocates that they've been heard by his inquiry and encouraged often at odds at the advocacy groups to work together and make change. He was again heckled by the audience members who believe they didn't have any equal billing 
at the inquiry. No change. Nothing's going to happen from this, one woman yelled. Opal said police made blatant errors in this case. The Vancouver police failed to pass along strong enough information to the RCMP about the case. And the RCMP made mistakes when investigating Picton. The victims were never taken seriously, Opal said in the interview. They received unequal treatment from the police. Opal was also critical that the case was void of any leadership, which ultimately led Picton's crime spree to go on for so long. Between 1998 and 1999, there was four informants pointing the finger at Picton, and yet Vancouver police did little with the information. Informants included Bill Hexox, his friend Lisa Yield, and Hussein Hussein women's clothing on the farm and thought Picton was killing women. Lynn Elkinson, who saw Picton butchering women. Sorry, I'm going to read that again because it's so shocking. Lynn Elkinson, who saw Picton butchering a woman in a slaughterhouse. Police have said these witnesses were problematic because they were drug users and often changed their story. Retire Mountie Mike Connor, who was dedicated to this case, working well with the Vancouver Police Detective Laura Shiner, who also was committed in helping the victim's family. When Connor was promoted, his boss wouldn't let him keep the missing woman's file. Opal said in an interview that the RCMP constable Ruth York Crick later phoned Picton's brother Dave and asked to visit the farm. He asked her to phone back in the rainy season because that's when they weren't busy. She agreed. Whoa. Project even handed the joint RCMP, Vancouver Police Task Force, thought it was an, in, an investigative historical murder when it first formed and worked under the assumption that there was no new murder despite the fact women continued to disappear from the downtown east side. Project Even Handed spent too much time looking for connections between the three murdered sex trade workers found near Mission and the downtown east side. Picton's DNA was eliminated from the suspect in the mission area cases. Opal, however, paused to acknowledge a few officers within the Vancouver Police and the RCMP did care enough about this case and its victims, but noted they often didn't receive any support from their bosses. He also commented that the Vancouver Sun for writing a series of stories before Picton's arrest to try to raise public profile of missing women and for demanding more attention given to the case. Among Opal's recommendation is for the police to liaison more 
with the media on high-profile stories in order to get information out to the public. Picton was arrested in February 2002, charged with killing 26 women who disappeared from the downtown east side between 1995 and 2001. The DNA of even more women were found on his farm. He was convicted of killing six women, while the government stayed the other 20 charges against him. During his 2007 trial, Picton bragged to an undercover officer posing as a cellmate he actually killed 49 women. Opal finished writing the report in November and gave it to the provincial government who studied it for the release today. In an interview Monday before the 1400 page case report released at 1, Opal said he was confident that his recommendations would bring change to protect women at risk in the future. I believe this inquiry is extremely important because we're dealing with the worst mass murder in Canadian history. And in particular, we deal with cases and the mistakes made. It's my hope we can make significant changes to protect vulnerable women, he said. What's really what this inquiry is about? Violence against vulnerable women and treating these women with dignity. The Liberal government will be responding to the public responding to it publicly later today as the RCMP and groups representing women and Aboriginals and the downtown east side. The inquiry itself, however divisive, families of the victims, women's groups and Aboriginal leaders were highly critical, accusing the inquiry of focusing too narrow on the issue of policing and not calling witnesses to speak about systemic issues that led to many of the victims ending up to, on the street. Most of the women were poor, worked in the sex trade, used drugs. A disproportionate number were Aboriginal. When the term of reference were made, not expanding, not expanded, and the provincial government denied funding for lawyers for advocacy groups, many organizations decided not to participate. Two lawyers were appointed to broadly represent the interests of Aboriginals and people living in the impoverished downtown east side, which critics said was not fair, and more than a dozen lawyers represented the police and the government. Opal said he was disappointed by some of the criticism of his inquiry. Groups representing women and Aboriginal in the downtown east side need to limit the infighting and come together and lobby for change, he said. So here we are, February 2021. Women are still going missing. And in the case of Tamara being missing, it's become almost impossible to report her missing. So to the Vancouver police credit, their policy of reporting missing people is in line with the inquiry's recommendation and it reads to the following. The VPD, the Vancouver police, will take your report seriously and start an investigation without delay. 
and we'll ask questions to ensure that we have the information we need. Conduct a thorough investigation, including a risk assessment. Focus on the safety and the well-being of the missing person. Keep you informed and other information about support and resources that might be available. And designate a contact person within the Vancouver Police to ease communication. Consult with family or reportee before releasing information photographs of the missing person to the media unless to do so would jeopardize a missing person or the investigation. Not to close a file until the missing person has been located and their identification has been verified. Not to share information about the location of the found missing adult without their permission. Where appropriate, work with other agencies to promote a found missing person's ongoing safety and limit recurring reports involving the same location or individuals or similar missing persons profile. What can you do to help an investigation? Be prepared to answer questions and provide information or items to the police as requested, such as photographs and personal items that belong to the missing person. Update the police soon as possible if the missing person contacts you or returns home or if you obtain new information that can assist the investigation. More information about missing person or process in BC. In BC, the Provincial Policing Standard for Missing Persons Investigation has been in effect since September 2016. The standards and the associating guiding principle established overall approach to missing persons investigation for all BC police agencies. The standards recognize a need for an officer discretion to address the unique needs in each case and the accountability for decisions through the supervisory review. In June 2015, a new provincial legislation, legislation came into effect, the Missing Persons Act, to improve police access to information that could help locate a missing person. The act allows police to apply for court orders to access records to conduct searches in case where criminal offenses is not suspected. The act allows officers to directly demand access to records in emergency situations. Coroner's Liaison. The Coroner Liaison works with both VPD and the BC Coroner Service to investigate involvement of the death. Liaison assists to identify victims and locating next of kin deals in any property that's been seized and ensures that it's necessary to follow up an investigation as reports have been done. So anyways, um, what was recommended to me that and you, the listener, can also do this. So instead of phoning to get a missing person case, just to have someone in authority to try to locate Tamara because I believe she's a person at risk due to her mental health history, if she's alive. And if she's not alive, I think people, you know, she shouldn't just fall through the cracks just like these women did on the downtown east side. What I was recommended is that we that you do it in writing 
and you send it by registered mail and you ask for a reply back in writing. So that's going to be my next step. And I, I have put a lot of effort trying to get answers to this. And some of the ideas that I had, I even thought maybe hiring a private investigator to, you know, to look for, you know, maybe do, you know, look for and gain access that I don't have the capabilities or the expertise to do so. But I really feel that at this stage, you know, I, I, I know there's a lot of people that care about her and, and are concerned. And I think raising money would be not a difficult thing to do. But I just don't feel confident that it would be well spent. Like my biggest fear is raising a bunch of money and this have the private investigators just sit on their hands and really offer no information that us as a online community can do on our own because all the information that I got was from that was really great was from you the listeners and people that interact with my Instagram page so I actually think together we can do a better job and I'm definitely interested in doing a letter writing campaign that's something I'm totally interested in but I'm going to take a little breather from this case but I'm still going to you know uh, dig away at it when I can and I'll be focusing on my next uh exciting uh, collaboration i have a friend that i've known for about a year and i knew his background was pretty scary he was involved in some pretty heavy organized crime at the very highest levels so we're going to collaborate together and we're going to i'm going to break down and interview some of his amazing tales of survival you know at uh, the highest level of organized crime being in maximum secure prisons He's led a life that is quite remarkable from professional boxer to now currently a professional bodybuilder at the age of 60. He's actually a really amazing person and I'm really honored to call him a friend and he's a survivor. So I posted a picture of him with his Italian crew in lockup in prison. It's quite a large group of people in that photo. He's the only survivor. So this series is going to be called The Last Man Standing. So I want to thank you so much for listening. I want to thank you so much for your support. And, you know, I've really grown organically at a, at a, at a level that blows my mind. And I really couldn't do it without your guys' support, your engagement. Uh, I, I really enjoy speaking with all of you. And I made some great, actual, really great friendships uh, through my platform. And I hope it's going to continue to grow. And I care about you guys very much. And I want you all to be safe and live a great life. And, and you know, hopefully, you know, you'll be interested in the stuff that I'm doing for a long, long time. So thank you so much and have a wonderful day.